This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever 90th episode of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented people in and around the hospitality community from Orange County, California to the rest of Southern California and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Croft McCarthy, founder and principal of the Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to my friend, Allie Coyle, who provides music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. As a reminder, if you enjoy the show, if you're listening to it on free feeds, please uh, be sure to leave a rating and or a review. Share it on social. It helps other folks discover it as well. You can go to TheBestSeats.com for more content just like this. And do not forget that if you subscribe at one of the monthly tiers over at Patreon.com forward slash The Best Seats, you get early ad-free listening to each and every episode a week before the public, as well as exclusive access to the post show for each and every episode since launching the new episodes for this year of 2022. Should be like 18 or 20 of them at this point over there. And they are only available there. Let's talk about the 90th episode, though. Uh, very excited to sit down with Chef Luis Sanchez, owner of Mouthful Eatery up in Thousand Oaks. Um, I've been trying to, obviously, this is an Orange County-based podcast. Um, I record these intros and outros here. A lot of the guests are Orange County. But, obviously, there's a lot more to Southern California than Orange County. We have this little town you might have heard of called L.A. Well, it's big, and there's a lot of great places up there with a lot of great chefs doing great things. There's everyone from the big celebrity top chefs that you know of, the Michelin stars, etc. But there's a lot of people just out there hustling, doing their best to make good food, provide for their families. And I think that there's a lot of stories out there. So as this podcast continues to grow and expand and move to include people from surrounding areas to where it's located here in Orange County, there's a lot of stories to be told. That's why I wanted to sit down with Chef to talk about his experiences What's it like to balance a business up in L.A. County when you're dealing with COVID stuff, Ventura County? How is it to translate his history with Peruvian food and things like that into basically just kind of fulfilling his dream of always having a really, really good sandwich shop? How's he doing it this past couple of years while balancing trying to launch a YouTube series as well as being a dad? There's a lot of great stuff that we can learn from stories all over the hospitality industry, and this is no different than that. Again, I love doing this show, and I love where it's based out of. I'm very proud of Orange County. I think we have great culinary figures here. San Diego's rife with them. Palm Springs is fantastic. But obviously, L.A. is the big monster in this area of Southern California with tons of talent oozing from every single corner of it. Chef Luis Sanchez is no different. And while there will be more shows in the future featuring L.A. guests, as well as other surrounding Southern California areas, I really, really, really am grateful to Chef for taking the time. We hopped on this one uh, digitally. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to drive up there. And again, with L.A. traffic, maybe not the worst thing either. So I hope that you will enjoy this 90th episode as this podcast continues to grow with Chef Luis Sanchez of Mouthful Eatery. Enjoy this one. It's fun. See you soon.
Chef, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. We've been trying to schedule this one for a little while now. We were finally able to do it. Um, unfortunately, not able to do it in person, but thankful for technology that we're at least able to chat. Um, been very excited about this one as I kind of expand out into more LA chefs and more kind of, at least for me, North County, but more of the Southern California area outside of Orange County. Before we dive into the episode proper, though, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and give it a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. My name is uh, Luis Sanchez. I uh, live in Ventura County and I own a, a restaurant called Mouthful Eatery here in Thousand Oaks. I've been cooking professionally for 30 plus years and uh, and but we can go back to when I was, you know, maybe three or four with my, my family in Peru. Um, I moved here when I was 16 and uh, I guess part of my my style of cooking is just a mixture of what I've learned in the journey that brings me to where I am today. I mean, 30 plus years, that's no short change. I mean, I just recorded an episode prior with this. The guest had been going 25 years. I mean, that's a long time to be in the kitchen and around kitchens and around this industry. What got you into it initially? Um, the need for a paycheck, I guess. The very, the very first job was more of a, I needed a job. I was 16. I was, um, uh, I, I came um, very young on my own, and I moved out of the house and came to L.A., and uh, I was uh, washing cars um, with a guy that I met at a soccer field. So we did that. I think I think I washed cars Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I was going to high school. So I got a, I got a sit-down with a counselor back at, in Burbank uh, who said you have a 33%-plus absentee rate in the last three months. So you're not going to graduate. So I said, well, I need to work, man. And, uh, and then he uh, gave me this opportunity to do this auto mechanics class at nighttime in the school in hopes that I can get a job on the weekends through that. Uh, but when I was there, I met this uh, really cool older Peruvian gentleman because he was open for it to any age. And this uh, gentleman was a bartender at this restaurant in Burbank called the Castaway up in the Hills. Um, uh, and, uh, he took a liking, uh, on me, maybe, you know, the Peruvian thing or the fatherly thing. So I told him my situation. So he brought me up and introduced me as his nephew. And I got hired as front of the house food runner at 16. And then that started my, my passion and my truly falling in love with the industry and, and how it feels like, like a team sport more than a job to me. So, uh, that's, that's how I started so early. Uh, throughout the years, I've gone to school for other things, uh, but I always go back to to the restaurant business. And in maybe in the last fifteen years, it's been my sole, uh, you know, income source and livelihood. How did Mouthful Eatery come to be? I uh, had a passion for sandwiches growing up in a in a very Peru is a very very advanced foodie culture. Yeah. Even even from the time when I was there, and uh, uh, I was very passionate about what a sandwich was like in Peru. And when I came here, my experience of a sandwich was more of a you know generic sub kind of place where, in all honesty, the first turkey sub sandwich thing that I had, I I was wondering why is the turkey shaped like not a turkey breast? It was like to match the size <laughs> of the bread. I'm like it's like a it's like a loaf of like a, you make a meat loaf that's the size of whatever you're gonna put on. So I, I always wonder I go how, how do they do that? That's not natural. Uh, and I always like. You know, went back to like, where's the turkey or where's the, you know, selling ham? So where's the leg of pork? And, and I just could not find it behind the counter. So I always had that in the back of my mind. And as I worked in restaurants, 
I reached a point uh, that my last, you know, uh, job in which I wasn't the owner, which was in Beverly Hills, I, I just kept writing this idea of a Peruvian-inspired sandwich shop. Um, and at the peak of my career, working for somebody else, making the most money I've ever made, I took a leap of faith and I and a huge pay cut, and I started my little sandwich shop. But uh, so it's a it's it started with five sandwiches that were Peruvian-inspired based on the idea that things need to come from actual parts of the animal. Yeah. And that's it. You know, like if it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pork, then we do pork shoulder. If it's turkey, then we actually have a turkey back there. And then we made some turkey meatballs and some, uh, we always had a veggie option and a fish option. So that's how it started. It's evolved to much more than that now, but that was the beginning of it. Uh, Peruvian expire, inspired. There's so many people. I love Peruvian cuisine. It's not one that you actually find kind of quote-unquote authentically out here. There's only so many restaurants. <clears throat> Excuse me. L.A. obviously has a lot more, uh, but in Orange County, it's hard to find. San Diego, I know it's hard to find. Uh, For people that may not be familiar with the cuisine itself, if they haven't had access to it, can you kind of define Peruvian cuisine and kind of what it is? Sure. Uh, we're blessed in Peru with uh, um, every type of climate. So I think that makes um, that makes it for a, uh, like a, uh, extremely vast amount of ingredients that go from, you know, the ocean to the Andes. So you, um, and we've learned how to utilize everything. Um, so it's that, uh, it's almost like when you're in your, in your, in your kitchen at home or, um, and then you open the fridge or open the pantry and, and there's everything. So we have everything. You go to a, a, a supermarket, which is not, I mean, we do have them that look like the ones here, but a lot of them are more like a swap made of fruits and vegetables and things. Yeah. And uh, you find, uh, Everything and then people bring you know daily things from the Amazon and the Andes and uh, it just gives you this so much more of a broad uh, spectrum of ingredients to play with, and then the other thing that that influenced the cuisine is the migration of uh, people from all over. So we have Italians, we have some uh, Jewish communities, a good amount of uh, uh, African. Um, community or people that came, uh, uh, you know, originalized slavery and then Asian, Japanese, Chinese. Um, and we all, it's, it seems like they all brought something to what the food is now. So um, I just take pride on, on, on seeing something like Nobu, uh, who's such a, like a, like a known name now. I know that he was an assistant at a little sushi bar in Lima. Uh, and uh, and how he brings Peruvian inspired stuff even now, even though he was you know he was born in Japan, but he still carries that with him, you know. So it's just I think it's that 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 fusion that you know. So Peruvian food, realistically nowadays, even in Peru, is a fusion of all these cultures that affected it. So I never. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say what's authentic from Peru. There might there are there are some basic stuff, but it's the fun of that mixture that has happened, and I think that happens in every culture as other people touch your food and 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 interpret it their way, and I, I think that's great. Yeah, no, that amalgam is definitely one of the most important things to any cuisine. All those different influences you get, and I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear about some of those kind of more Asian influences that do come in. You talked about kind of you get Japanese influence, Chinese influence. Those mm -hmm. flavors percolate. I mean, there are a lot of kind of things that translate through that food. I mean, how long has Mouthfeel been around and how has it kind of evolved during that time? Uh, we opened uh, all, it'll be nine years uh, later on this year. So it's almost nine years. And uh, it was a 1100 square foot place with 
a menu that had 12 things on it. Um, and then um, the hours of operation were from 11 to 4, 11 to 3, I think, the first couple of months. Mm-hmm. And uh, we opened in a, in a very, uh, not old school, but more conservative uh, community when it comes to a lot of things, including food. Uh, we took over a, a, a hot dog stand or restaurant or fast casual place uh, that was open only for a few months. So we locked out and which, you know, everything happens for a reason, but we locked out because we walked into something that had a lot of equipment, um, uh, which helped for the business. And uh, then we we ran it like that. And uh, I remember because of my, I have a like high-end uh, restaurant experience. Uh, like, um, so I did a lineup with my four employees every day and we checked uniforms and we went over specials and stuff. <laughs> and they're all looking at me like, what are you doing? It's like, they thought of it as like a little sandwich shop, you know? Yeah. So, and then we did fruit salads every day, but we, we made them with ex- exotic fruits and a lot of them just went bad because nobody, nobody wanted to try the food at first. Uh, but it was just funny when I look back at, at how I wanted it to be uh, and a lot of things we kept but um, but but it, it was it was I think um, just an evolution of me as a as a chef and and most of all as a business owner and a dreamer because when you're a chef you you have all these desires and and uh, and dreams of what your food's gonna look like and, and taste and then re- the reality of it being a business kicks in it's not it's a business yeah uh, and that, that years but yeah so we went from a small place and then we uh, leased the place next door and expanded. And uh, and then expand it to dinner, and then we do a bunch of catering. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a bigger production now. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can't have any kind of interview, especially talking about LA County, without talking about 2020 and even parts of 2021. From the business owner standpoint, what was that experience like with the shutdowns, and and especially because LA has been arguably the strictest about it out of the entire country. What was that experience like from the ownership standpoint? Uh, very tough. Luck, not luckily, but we are about two exits uh, north of LA County. So oh, we so you, you escaped County. part of it. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And Ventura County is, for the most part, adheres to LA County, but in a, in a few occasions we were a little more relaxed. Not like Orange County, yeah. but a, a little bit more relaxed. Uh, but we went, just on numbers, we went from 19 employees to three employees uh, like that. That's tough. Uh, and, and we went from sales of, you know, a couple of thousand to $41. And I think the day that we did 37 bucks for the whole shift, I was like, this is kind of serious. So let's, let's, and then the employees came to me and they, they all said, we got to regroup. We, we, we're not going to make it like this. So then uh, luckily those three employees became um, five and seven and 10 quickly uh, because we had to react and uh, we had a, all this food, you know, chicken and pork and, you know, rice and everything that we have there. And I went home a little defeated for the first time, closing the restaurant at about 5 p.m. that day that we did 37 bucks. And uh, looking at uh, buying uh, a used bike for my kids. So I have have two kids and one was five at the time, uh, almost six, and he didn't know how to ride a bike. So I figured we're gonna be shut down. Let's take this time to show him how to ride a bike. I had no bike for him. So I went on Nextdoor, one of those apps. And as I'm looking for a used bike, I see somebody posting this thing of a chain restaurant that had this essential packages for 40 bucks that included two pounds of chicken, one pound of rice, some sugar, potatoes, eggs, and they sold them for 40 bucks. But the whole thing was that, that they sold out within minutes. And in my head, I'm like, I like literally all eight things that come in the package. I have, yeah. like I have, I don't know what to do with them. So I posted my little thing and said, Hey, this is, 
Luis, I own Mouth Literary, local restaurant. If anybody wants to do this, just message me and I'll go to work tomorrow. Because I wasn't even planning on opening the next day. And I had 21 responses for packages. So we went back to work and we started packaging stuff. And that very, very, very uh, fast turned into, I became a, a, a go-getter, not in the sense of a go-getter, but I would go get your stuff. Yeah. Like you want carrots for your horses? Sure. Uh, I don't have any yeast. I want to pick up baking because we're going to be shut down. I'll get it for you. So I just, it became a sort of a supermarket. And uh, and uh, and the, what I remember is uh, a couple of things, but one of the things was how, how you know, and not ill-intended, but just naturally people were so afraid of making any sort of physical contact. So we would walk out there with gloves because there, there were weeks that we did gloves all the way here and the mask and the hairnet, and people would just pop up their trunks. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even, I mean, basically looking at you, you might get sick. And then you just <laughs> put it in there and you carefully, or they would say, don't touch anything, just drop it in there and just close it to the outside. And then they'll pay over the phone. It was so interesting. But, but because of that, uh, uh, we were able to survive. And then we started making things like enchiladas, which are not on our menu, and, uh, you know, lasagna, whatever, just prep meals that you can just heat up at home or pick up hot. But it was all out, outside, open your trunk, and we just loaded up the car. Uh, and then little by little takeout and, and third-party uh, delivery apps uh, started helping out. And, uh, and then here we are. So we made it. We made it. We're back to pre-COVID numbers and then some. So it's a little bit better than it was before. Good. That's awesome. I mean, first of all, congratulations. But second of all, as somebody who's been in the industry, you know, for so long, what changes kind of did all these, you know, shutdowns and everything else have on you from an owner standpoint, a chef standpoint? I mean, were there any changes that you guys made kind of during all the shutdowns that have now kind of altered the way maybe you do day-to-day business or, or even just kind of approach the business as a whole? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and, and the business has changed um, just on the on on the approach of takeout, which we were never really a takeout place. We took pride in our little uh, sit down area that's very colorful, and we have all this original art and mm-hmm. cool music. And that just up until maybe a few months ago was always always empty. So takeout business has remained extremely high and it's about 50% of the revenue of mouthful. Um, uh, a lot of the, the procedural stuff with the cleanliness, we, we obviously were always clean, but we still keep that up. And, uh, and I think a sense of community within the employees that came from that. So we always checked on each other. So my, you know, my relative is kind of sick and then we would give advice or just stay home. I'll cover for you. Uh, that you know, we were always closed, but we became more family-like at that process, and, and I'm glad that that has uh, remained. Yeah. So I think I think those are the the changes that you really feel. Uh, but I think the nature of the business and the need for, or, or I think we got used to becoming more of a takeout culture, and I don't know if that's going to stick for many years, but it's definitely sticking for this year. Um, and then the the also the um, desire to sit outdoors which was always there because we have such great weather, but now it's even more, even when it's not as warm, uh, people still would prefer to sit outside. And I think, you know, looking at a lease for an next restaurant, I would look for a smaller uh, footprint on the inside and maybe outdoor patio and have an easy way to do takeout. So th- those are things that I'm looking for right now. I was going to say so many people did have to set up kind of impromptu, alfresco dining, things like that. Um, and I know that the longer things went on, 
certain owners I've talked to from San Diego County all the way to Santa Barbara, stuff like that, they would have issues with their landlords. Okay, you've had outdoor for so long, but it's not part of your lease. We need to move this or cancel it, things like that. How was it working within your lease and with your landlords? I, I, I was blessed. I have a landlord that's a straight shooter and, uh, you know, month one of, uh, I think maybe April of 2020 when, when I really knew that I didn't have the rent yeah. uh, or maybe even May, the phone call had to be made. And, uh, before I even opened my mouth, uh, he, without mentioning his name, he, he you know, he said, before you say anything, I don't want you to worry about anything. Just keep, keep at it, keep at it and do what you can. And we'll figure it out. But he didn't say, give me 50%, 60%. He just said, just keep going. So, so I then kind of came out with a formula in my head of what I could give him. And then we ran like that through through the process. Uh, and there was never any pressure. There was never even, you know, going back to the outdoor patio, uh, uh, we had um, uh, a few tables outdoors in the front, which we expanded. And the city was very welcoming with that. And then in the back parking lot, um, I mentioned to the landlord, would, would it be okay if I put some tape? And he said, you do whatever you have to do. Like, it was always much, very much like that. It was never, well, you know, only for now, or once we get to that point, I'm going to charge you more. Or let, no, no, no. He wanted, and I see his, I mean, we, we're good tenants, and, and uh, I think that, that it works for his advantage, but he in, he really wanted me to do well and make it through, so I, I'm, I was very blessed. And, and I've heard horror stories from other people, and I've heard that there's people like like my guy that, that were very supportive as well. That's great. Well, it's time for a little commercial. Yeah. I don't know about you, but 2020 had me re-looking at how I live and the space that I live in. Spending so much time at home really had me reevaluating how certain things worked and didn't in my living space. One of the main things, as an avid home cook and an obvious supporter of restaurants, was gardening. Anybody who enjoys food at all will be able to tell you that something you've grown yourself will taste infinitely better than anything you can buy at a store. That's where Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potage comes in. Heirloom Potage designs, installs, and maintains seasonal culinary gardens for chefs and foodies in Orange County. They provide organic gardening methods and bespoke build-outs used to preserve the heirloom varietals that they'll provide for seeds. An approachable and exciting endeavor, no matter if you're a seasoned restaurateur or a stay-at-home chef. Owner Ashley Irene's experience, expertise, and enthusiasm is only matched by her professionalism. For more information on how you can set up a consultation to get your own culinary garden space set up, go to heirloompotage.com. That's heirloom, H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M, potage, P-O-T-A-G-E-R. Dot com today. Once again, that's Heirloom Potage. If you listen to the best seats at all or read the content, then you know the motto, live well and often. But what does it mean? In layman's terms, it's trying to give you the best products, places, experiences, and more so you can put a big smile on your face every single day. Amass Botanics is what I use on my back bar constantly. I need a cocktail or a quick pick-me-up. Any of their other botanical products, like candles, hand sanitizer, and more, also helps to set the mood. Now, I'm a big fan of everything that Amass does. I have been since day one when they launched their trademark gin, and everything they've done since then has been nothing short of excellent. Now you can get your hands on their products at a discounted rate. 
by going to amass.com and using the discount code, the best seats 15, that's C-E-A-T-S, at checkout. Now it's limited one per customer, so make sure you load up. But trust me, you can't go wrong with anything they're doing. I stand by Amass 100%. They're one of my go-to brands for spirits needs or anything around the house. So again, go to amass.com, that's A-M-A-S-S, and use the code thebestseats15 at checkout. Trust me, you will not be disappointed. It's great. I mean, we should mention the fact that you're not just only kind of chef owner, you know, manager of this place. You're also expanding into the digital space. I mean, during the shutdown, a lot of people moved into, you know, I knew a lot of friends in the liquor industry, especially they would do online cocktail classes. Chefs would do online cooking classes if they weren't obviously able to be in their kitchen. You know, you do do YouTube series and things like that. Talk about what you're doing in the digital space. Yeah, we, we started a YouTube series about um, a little under a year ago and, um, it's just another, it, 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 you have to move on with the time. So it was another way to expand our brand and, uh, and uh, have a, a, a presence out there. And uh, what we do is basically, it's without calling it an old school cooking show, it's, it, it, it is a cooking show that doesn't use the extreme close-ups uh, and the fast cuts where, where they make a bolognese sauce in 42 seconds. Yeah, We actually kind of walk you through without showing you the three hours or four hours we walk <laughs> you through the process kind of like what it used to be you know in like 16 to 18 minutes we see a recipe uh and it's very straightforward out of you know budget or whatever but it's just me and uh lovely diana who who helps me on everything i do and uh, and we just do a little, a little intro and then we make the food and we talk about why and how and how to make it I mean, the approach for the show itself is um that to take away that fear of oh my god i don't have watermelon radishes i only ha- i only found the red uh, breakfast radishes at the store go ahead i mean sure make it you know it's don't 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 let that stop you so i, I always when i tell people they're like well how do you make that i go well it's a miso paste with maple syrup and you make and they go yes yeah, i don't know where to find miso paste i go just put something <laughs> put a little something else but make it because once you enjoy the process, then next time you're out there and you see maple or miso, you'll be like, oh, I'll pick that up. You yeah. know, it, it's just get, it's kind of like uh, swimming, just get in the water and then put your arms out there and take little steps. And, and that's the approach for cooking. Cause I, I think cooking in its basic form is a way to bring not only your creativity out, but also gather people around you, whether it's family, friend or whatever it is. And it's like a way of giving. I, I was, um, I worked uh, for somebody in Beverly Hills and his mom, who was in her 80s back then, would walk around and look at your hands. This older lady, uh, she passed, but she would look at your hands and from the way you held your hands, and it wasn't the long fingers or short fingers or burns, it was just the way you move your hands and she'll, be, she'll just tell her son, he's going to be good. And, she, and there was something about that, that energy that I think that, that cooking brings out and it, and it just kind of makes sense. But yeah, I, just, I just personally would would like for everyone to cook and i guess maybe because of peru in peru you know i come there's five of us i have four siblings and all of us cook and my parents both my dad and my mom are excellent cooks so it's like everyone has to cook it's it's part of it, our dna i guess so when you go when we have family ga- gatherings it could be very you know uh competitive yeah uh but it, but it's it's that thing that we bring we want to bring on the on the tv show or not TV show. I keep saying TV show. It's a YouTube show. That's all right. I know it's TV show, YouTube show, digital show. It's all yeah, the same. It's all, 
You know, really quick, what's funny is my, I have an eight-year-old son, and I remember being eight years old in Peru, and I can tell you every single thing that's on television on the four channels that we had there <laughs> from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m., like by half an hour. Watch show, watch show. Uh, th- my son has no clue what ABC is, CBS. No. ABC. No, no, I mean, nothing. They, they, there's nothing, no interest. No, they will, uh, and they will never know. Nope, nope. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting how, how that has changed in the last, I would think, maybe seven years uh, but it's such a drastic change that we haven't grasped it, where, where celebrities to them are somebody that I've never heard of. When celebrities were like sports people and or television people, it's just so interesting. I know. They'll never know the pain of you had that show and it was on at this time zone, and if you missed it, you missed it. Oh, yeah. You or were, if your brother took the remote yep. away from you, then that's it. Oh, you would go to you war. Yeah. War back then. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned you started in the front of the house at 16. So many people that get into this industry, they kind of start young, they get hooked, they get kind of bit by that bug, and they stick with it forever. Where did the culinary education come from? Where? How did you uh, transition from the front to the back? Yes, a front was uh, more lucrative at that point in my life. And I did it, uh, 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 so I did it as a food runner, busboy, uh, server assistant in those fancy restaurants that they didn't call them bus boys, and then and then server, and then I right at twenty one on my twenty first birthday I transitioned to the bar, which is like a big passion of mine, mm-hmm. and I did bars, bars, bars until my thirties, and uh, the last bars that I did were college bars, uh, but I always cooked, always cooked at home and or employee meals, uh, family meals for the restaurants. Uh, that was my thing. I would, I would do a little collection for the week, and I would come in and cook. And then one time uh, I was at this restaurant uh, bar that I bartending and it was a college bar and it was my maybe fourth fight to break up in the last six months. And this one was bigger and I was just holding a kid back and a, a glass got cracked in my head at 16 stitches. And when I was getting stitched up, I said, I think, I think I'm done. So I, I had the money and I went to what uh, was back then was the Hollywood Kitchen Academy. And after a semester, he turned into Le Cordon Bleu Hollywood, which was a crazy, that's a show in itself right there, how in the middle of it, they just switched programs and everything. But anyway, <laughs> so that's why the culinary comes. And I trained and I ended up in Beverly Hills for an externship, just grinding pepper and cutting potatoes. And because of my bartending, I moved up. I was in the kitchen, literally grinding pepper. And this guy comes in and asks, what's on a French 74, 75 or something? And I just kind of like, just said, announced a half a desert, and they, the other guys were like, how do you know that? I go, well, I used to bartend, and then the owner overheard that, and he pulled me and gave me, a, you know, he really wanted me to bartend, and I became the food and beverage director after maybe like three months of being there, so that was really cool, and I stuck it out with him for eight years, but uh, so my training came out of that experience as a bartender at a college bar, uh, and, uh, you know, just, just, uh, the, the need for a change into something that was more creative and less, I don't know, dangerous, I guess. Yeah. Bartending at a college bar, if you really want to see the humanity and I don't mean <laughs> that, I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, there's a reason yeah. that you don't see college bars landing on like the imbibe top 50 and punches best bars. They're they're You're not, you're not there for a high end cocktail. Dude. Yeah. It's <laughs> yes. Yes. It's volume and it's, it's volume. Yeah. And, How and many cases of Jameson can yeah. we go through? Yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> when did you transition um, to realize you wanted your own space? You wanted something that was yours? I think once I was in Beverly Hills for a while and I had experienced, you know, front, back of the house and, uh, 
and then mixology at that point too. So I, I work with uh, like uh, brands and cocktail development and stuff. Um, I felt like I had done pretty much everything in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had some money saved up and I had this, uh, always had this idea of the sandwich shop in my head. And I started making it more visual and started drawing out uh, layouts and what what the, the logo would like look like. And then I started working on recipes and I still have that book. Um, uh, and that's that's what I, when I, when I started looking like something um, that could be done, then I said, okay, well, this is my chance. Um, but I, I remember that voice in my head for the last five years while I was there saying, no matter what, before I die, it's kind of dark at 30 something, but before I die, I want to be, I want to open a restaurant. Uh, and if it fails, so be it. I know how to do this for other people. I can do it, uh, but I want to do it. And uh, so I just took a leap of faith and, and did it. A lot of the people that I talk to that have a lot of experience in either bartending or cooking kind of in those two fields generally have the desire to open their own place, right? A chef uh-huh. kind of wants their own place. A bartender kind of wants their own bar. Yeah. As somebody who spent a lot of time behind the bar, was it always the sandwich shop or did you ever kind of flirt with the idea of maybe doing your own kind of craft cocktail bar? Oh, I think at the beginning, the idea was to do a, a, a lounge uh, with food, like a gastropod mm-hmm. uh, with live music. So I want to combine it all. Um, and I had $109,000. This is back in 2012. Uh, and when I started crunching numbers uh, and talking to contractors and, and layouts and liquor like that, there's no way. I mean, yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't even open a full run. So I had a partner at Mouthful that came in with me uh, and I bought him out a couple of years before COVID. But um, it was the, the reality sets and it, it, it takes close to $700,000 probably to do that. So it was more of a financial decision. I will like to, to translate, we do beer and wine, um, which is not high sales, but I, I always had the desire to apply for a full liquor license, which is easier in, in Ventura County. And then uh, bottling cocktails, the idea of like, you know, a little maybe 10 ounce Snapple looking bottle, mm-hmm. cap it and uh, have four cocktails of the week just sitting there and so somebody not not a full bar i wouldn't the concept would be too confusing at this point to add a bar there uh but no definitely in in my mind and some of it on paper i have some concepts that include bars well god knows there's some great places up there and spirit companies especially ventura spirits alone make some fantastic stuff so you'd you'd be in good hands yes Um, i want to come back to the the mental aspect and kind of the product of what a lot of people dealt with through 2020 is, and I've mentioned this on other interviews in the past, is for a lot of people, even if you were working at home when you were locked down, it was still almost kind of like a forced sabbatical for a lot of people in the hospitality industry. They weren't able to work. Maybe they were laid off if they were with a group that could afford it. Maybe they were still getting paid in some capacity, but a lot of people weren't working. However, a lot of people in hospitality still were, like you said, trying to transition all the time, doing the packs, going and getting things for people. A lot of people never really got a break kind of quote unquote, whether they wanted it or not. Um, as somebody who has kids, how did you do, how did you find the work-life balance between, well, you were already doing it, owning a restaurant and being a parent, but now owning a restaurant in a pandemic, being a parent, what was that experience like? It, it, very hard. It, the, the, the hardest was the assumption. And, and of course, what are they going to do? But when, when you have kids, I, uh, at the time, my daughter was three and my son was five or six. I uh, went through a divorce on December of 2019 and then the pandemic hit in March 
March of 2020. Uh, you know, um, so it's a combination of that, learning how to be a dad, but then not having the, the for me, you know, the, the school time where your, your kids go to school from 8 to 3, 2.30 or whatever, it gives you such a window to do stuff for your business. And when, when uh, it was announced no school and it just kept dragging, it, it, it was very hard. Uh, and then understanding, because it's not only, not only your, your kids have to know how to do the Zoom thing, but you have, because they're going to come to you and ask you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a technological person <laughs> at all. Uh, so I had to learn that myself. But it was very challenging. And uh, what we ended up doing with uh, my ex-wife uh, was uh, we, we got together with other parents that had uh, children that were uh, uh, the same age. And uh, we put a, a school or a classroom together. We hired a retired teacher and we ran all the protocols. And we had nine kids in, in one classroom running their own programs through Zoom. And this wonderful retired teacher was able to do, I think, three different school district programs and then we would all take turns, turns on, as parents, and we do PE and uh, and uh, recess, <laughs> and uh, and it made more sense like that. So I yeah. would do my thing, come in, I do PE at ten thirty to eleven thirty. We play basketball in a parking lot, and then I'll bring it back, and we did that. But it also brought a sense of normalcy for them, you know, because uh, they they were never alone. They were always around other children. Yeah, that's really nice. So, yeah, yeah, no, no, that, that was a, a great idea on my ex-wife, and then uh, and she was more of the spur of that. But I, I, I was thankful, and it really allowed us to keep working um, because that's the hard thing. Is it's easy to say, you know, your kids can't come to school, but I don't know if people were thinking of. So what what are people going to do that? Because I'm essentially I'm sort of an essential worker. I, I I'm doing food plus I had a contract. I have a contract with the county where I feed the elderly, because and that started with COVID. So. Um, how do you do all that? You know, how, how do you make it work? So it was a, a, a blessing that we were able to organize at school and uh, that the kids felt uh, a more, more of a sense of normalcy throughout. I mean, they always say it takes a village to kind of raise kids and you guys literally made that apparent. So that's pretty awesome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that, yeah. It was funny cause we were parenting other kids, and, yeah. uh, but, but that, it was the way that we made it work. Yeah. It's nice when you're grounded turns into you have detention. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, how do things feel now moving into the future? I mean, obviously we're, we're kind of through this kind of quote unquote, I mean, people can kind of take their own views on it, but it feels like we're on the other side for the most part. How does the future look for mouthful? I'm very hopeful. I, I've always been a, a cheery, happy person, but, uh, and of course COVID, uh, you know, took a little bit of that oomph away but for the most part i feel like uh, i feel like you know even though you know we have we have the the, the russia uh ukraine thing going and the mm -hmm. economy going um uh, i still feel very hopeful of what the restaurant business is going to look like as long as you're adaptable so i think that's the main thing for me it's like you know if you want to sell a b and c and uh, and things change you should be you're going to be have to be okay with doing it differently uh otherwise you're not going to survive i uh, i i see you know the the possible the strong possibility of opening another store at some point here and or next and we're working on the cookbook and then pushing more for youtube stuff and then uh venturing it into zoom style cooking classes like virtual cooking classes so yeah. uh it's the diversifying um uh, luis as a chef and the concept that's going to keep us going but i, I have I, i'm all, all all full throttle in, into the future that's great i'm very very glad to hear that 
Uh, well, Chef, I'm going to wind this one down. I am going to keep you around for a exclusive post show to anybody who subscribes on Patreon, where we are going to talk about the cookbook um, and a couple other questions that I have a little looser. But as far as we wind down this one, um, if people are up in the Ventura area and they want to look you guys up, find you on Instagram, again, the YouTube stuff, where can people do that at? Yeah, so the restaurant's called Mouthful Eatery. It's in Thousand Oaks, and the address is 2626 East Thousand Oaks Boulevard. And uh, we're open seven days a week. Uh, the website is mouthfuleatery.com. And the handles for Facebook and Instagram are Mouthful Eatery. And you can find me on uh, uh, for the for the chef show. It's an, or the YouTube the YouTube cooking show is called A Seat at My Table. And then the the chef uh, the other one was the the chef page is chefluissanchez.com. Perfect. All right. Well, like I said, we are going to do a post show right after this. But Chef, I want to thank you so much time for this show. I am so glad that not only have you found it through the other side of everything that's been going on, but it sounds like things are on the up and up and the future is bright for you. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. And this has been fun. And uh, I hope to see uh, some of your listeners out there soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chef, for taking the time. Um, thank you to the people that work with Chef also. There were a lot of people that kind of helped on the back end of this uh, to kind of help put this show together. Really, really grateful that he was able to hop on digitally and we were able to do this. I would always love to do these shows in person, but logistically, it's just too hard sometimes, especially with given how big and spread out Los Angeles is and the rest of Southern California. So very grateful for Chef for taking the time. He's obviously a very, very busy guy, but again, a great story and just more continued stories of, well, basically the entire reason I started The Best Seats, giving people a voice, giving people in the hospitality community a way to be heard, a way to tell their stories, their ups, their downs, their struggles, their successes, and everything in between. So thank you to all of you who are listening. Thank you to everybody who supports on Patreon. I cannot do this show without you. Uh, May was one of the biggest months for Patreon so far, so keep subscribing. There's even more content launching on June 1st, depending on when you're listening to this. It may already be out. But either way, free feeds or Patreon, love you. Thank you for the support, and I will see you on the next episode. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and principal of The Best Seats. It's based in Orange County, California. It is subsidized through generous monthly donations at patreon.com forward slash the best seats. The following are the names of those who subscribed at the highest monthly tier, aka norm status and allow me to continue producing this show each and every month. As a thank you for their continued support, here are the names. Shell McCarthy, Serena Warino, George Pavlov, Eric Lutz, Paige Reardon, Loco Lipo, Tim Falk, Marito Norito, Sarah Hines, Subtle Bubbles, Jay Baker, Tim Swine, John Sanchez. Thank you for your support.